Welcome to Love After Lullabies, the podcast where we discuss the joys and challenges of parenting, preserving relationship intimacy, and rekindling romance after baby arrives. I am Miranda, a licensed professional counselor in the state of Oregon who specializes in working with couples to help preserve relationship satisfaction after becoming parents. I am joined by my wonderful co-host and husband, Aaron. Hey We've been together for over two decades, and we've experienced our own relationship morph over the years. Get ready to hear real conversations with couples who share how they've experienced parenthood while keeping that flame alive. We will also share communication and intimacy tools for you to utilize in your own relationship. Keep your chin up. Look at those stars. <laughs> but, wait, I got a better one. Make sure those chairs stop squeaking. <laughs> Hey everybody, today we are talking all about breastfeeding. We spoke with Kelly Durbin, who's a lactation consultant and author, and it was really lovely to chat. We had a nice conversation talking a lot about our experience, you know, as new parents going into this breastfeeding world and how we expected it to be so easy. Yeah, there was a big learning curve, and I feel like I was learning as we went instead of learning beforehand what the potential possibilities are that you might struggle with. Yeah. Anything else you want to say before we, we just dive in? Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> okay. Enjoy the episode. All right. Take care. Bye. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. Today we have Kelly Durbin. Uh, she's a lactation consultant, childbirth educator, health coach, author, teacher, and breastfeeding supporter. Am I correct? <laughs> That's right. That's a lot of things. That's a lot. <laughs> and well, it all kind of evolved over the years. And I'm, I'm so glad that we're going to talk about this today just because I know for me, when I was pregnant with our first, I had this assumption that breastfeeding was going to be so easy, right? You just put the baby to your boob and they nurse and that's it. And it was not that experience at all. <laughs> it was very difficult and... I didn't realize how it affected or changed our relationship. And, and so I think it's something that isn't often talked about. So I agree. Me. And I feel like it does seem, or at least intuitively, we often think, oh, this is going to be easy. The baby knows what to do. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, the milk is ready. It's just going to happen. And then suddenly you find out, wow, this is much more difficult than I thought. And once you leave the hospital, you don't have access to, you know, just pushing the call button or asking your nurse who's coming around to, you know, help me with positions or help. Why is the baby doing this? How come I don't feel like things are working, you know, and, and then suddenly you're at home alone and, and it's literally yeah. <laughs> like swimming in a pool without a life jacket and you know nothing about swimming. Yeah, exactly. We had, um, you know, that initial lactation appointment that was provided through, you know, the the childbirth center that we gave birth at, which was great. And thankfully, they were able to identify that our, our child had a tied tongue. So um, mm -hmm. there was latching issues there. But, you know, still after that was resolved, the pain and the discomfort and not knowing what to do and taking my frustration out on him. And yeah, it's a definitely very isolating for sure. Well, and I think there's a lot of that that isn't breastfeeding related, but is newborn related that can be so challenging. I'm, how old are your kids? They're six and nine right now. Okay. 
So you remember this really well, like coming home with that newborn baby and feeling the vulnerability of, did they really let us leave the birth center with this newborn? And we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. Where's the manual? Right. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And then, you know, I agree with you, Miranda. I felt a certain sense of, I don't know if I would call it resentment, but I felt like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I would, you know, talk, try to talk to my husband and ask him for help. And of course he felt even more helpless than I did. And I think he thought because we both had assumptions that we didn't discuss before the birth. I think he thought that because I was the one that was pregnant and the milk was coming from me, that I would know somehow on some higher level what to do. And I had no idea. Right. Yeah. I also felt helpless and I, and I watched her go through this and I wanted to help so badly. And interesting enough, when we, we talk about this a lot on our podcast, um, the things it's interesting, the things that you don't discuss before big changes like this happen. Yes. We, we use the Bradley method in our first daughter's, like our, our birthing plan was this coach led your, your partner's the coach and yes. you know, it's, it's very intuitive and they, you know, they went over it's in very much detail and we really prepared but they never went into what happens afterwards mm-hmm. and never was mm-hmm. like, this, these are the possibilities that you could run into. And, and here are the people that could help you support you if you do run into them. I agree. And it's, it feels very um, isolating. It can be frustrating. A lot of people don't, aren't really prepared for the wave of emotion that happens right after the birth, you know, of course we're celebrating and the day that the baby's born is usually wonderful. And you think, Oh, this is great. And then a few days later, reality kind of sets in. And like I said, it's not always feeding related, but that can heighten the issues, but it's very newborn related. And I agree with you, Aaron. I feel like it might be really helpless to sit and watch and feel like, I don't know. I have no answers for these issues, you know? being a recovering, I need to fix this person, right? Mm-hmm. Like, sometimes yep. I, you know, we just need to listen, but I, that, that, it, that was really hard to go to watch her go through that. Yeah. 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 So at what point do people call you in? Like, w- w- tell us about kind of how you get involved. So I've, uh, like you said, I kind of have evolved my practice over the years, but generally um, people will call a lactation consultant when they sometimes kind of too late. You might be thinking like, oh, it'll get better, or I'll just figure this out. Or, you know, the first line of defense is usually I'm going to call a friend or family member who has just gone through this, or, hey, my mom nursed all four of her kids. I'm going to call her. But without high-level lactation knowledge and training, sometimes those folks don't always, aren't prepared for giving the best advice. That It's not always just a simple solution that your cousin or your friend can give guidance on. And of course, there's very little, if anything, related to the discussion of how does this change the dynamics of our whole household? How does this change the dynamic of our ability to communicate well, to be partners in this when it feels very maternal loaded, you know, it's very mother heavy. And those things, people often don't um, call in the right professionals at the right time. So I think just in my experience, people wait a little bit too long to seek advice. And the funny thing is, is that there is a lot of free and volunteer advice out there that is very high level. It can be extremely helpful. There's 
multiple organizations nationwide that offer free breastfeeding, either by phone, text, email, or in-person groups, especially since the pandemic is over. Everyone's trying to get back to in-person support, which is nice. Although I will tell you that telelactation, which is providing lactation support through the phone or through a Zoom call, is taking off. And it is oh, it is sure. incredible. It's a really, really good solution for a lot of breastfeeding issues. Yeah, I bet. And I mean, I would imagine just taking away some of the barriers of transportation and, you know, getting all the things ready to go to an appointment and getting support through Zoom or over the phone is is actually legitimate. It's a very good way to do this. I, I really do want to encourage people to try it if they feel like it's an option. A lot of times it's a it's an offered option as a follow up. You may need to go see the lactation consultant once so they can do like an in-person exam, visit with you, find out your issues. And then a lot of the follow-up can happen over the phone. How did I get into this work? Well, very naturally, as you can imagine, in October of 06, I had a baby. And um, man, I was, I I didn't do the Bradley class, but I took a 12-week childbirth class. And Mm -hmm. it was so eye-opening. And I, of course, prior to this, I was a uh, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade teacher. And I I remember thinking, as soon as I met my childbirth educator, I thought, I want to be like this lady when I grow up. And of course, I was already grown up, but I didn't know what, (laughs) I didn't love teaching. So I reevaluated my entire career at that moment because I knew I wasn't going to go back right away. My daughter was born in October. The, the year, the school year had already started and I wasn't planning on teaching right then. And I thought, you know, this is it. I feel connected to the, the birth and breastfeeding world. At the moment, at that moment, I was more birth related because I hadn't gone through this big journey of breastfeeding yet. But um, I became a childbirth educator. I did actually start teaching childbirth education, which was exciting for me because it's, it is a fascinating thing all unto itself, not to mention the whole realm of breastfeeding. But then after my, um, my first daughter was born, she had, I know you mentioned tongue tie. My daughter had a whole host of conditions, including, um, tight oral tissues. She had torticollis. She was not a good sleeper. We had all kinds of issues, but she was so strong. I mean, such a robust infant that she compensated so well for, and this people see this all the time with infants. You're, there, are, there is a certain way that they're supposed to use their tongue and their lips and everything that's oral related in order to transfer milk. And a lot of times for infants recruit other muscles that should not really be used or overused during the process of feeding. And then their bodies have all this tension and things can really start to go awry. But my daughter was excellent wow. at compensating. I didn't realize that it would cause her literally years of problems. She's got all this tightness in her body and she, we're still working on it. And she's going to be 17 in two weeks, <laughs> which is incredible. Oh my God. Yeah. So yeah. it is. But I became fascinated by lactation and the process of I mean, I think it just dawned on me one day that not only had I been able to grow an infant, but I also, for months afterwards, was her sole source of food. And I just, even though I was an adult, I was in my mid-30s, this concept had literally never occurred to me. I wasn't breastfed as an infant. So I just 
just didn't think much of it until she came along. And then I was reevaluating literally everything I knew about pregnancy and infant feeding. And I became fascinated with it. And because she had so many issues and I did feel the need to call in all sorts of support when she was little, I felt like, you know, I could actually do this. And I first started out as a volunteer breastfeeding supporter, which is something I still do in addition to the other things that I do now. But volunteer breastfeeding support is a really viable way to seek breastfeeding help and education support and community when you're brand new to this. And there are groups in virtually all over in every city, in major cities all over the country. So that's how I came mm -hmm. to this work. And it's it's been, you know, 17 years almost since I started my breastfeeding journey. And it's been really, really fascinating. And I do thoroughly enjoy helping people uncover their obstacles, issues, um, interference, anything that they struggle with. It's so amazing for a couple that's gone through that to to have somebody like you on their side during this process. That's got to be really empowering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Definitely. it is. It can be really helpful, especially when you know you've got a team. You know, you, you're thinking instead of that feeling of like, okay, I'm completely isolated. I'm out here on my own trying to figure this out because as was your experience and probably many others, your partner often doesn't have the answer. It wouldn't it be great if breastfeeding yeah. had a, a partner support element to it, but it's right. also a little more high tech. You know, there's a lot of ins and outs in, ter in terms of learning the, the milk feeding journey. But I will say this, and Aaron, you mentioned this earlier. There is a lot that can come from the partner that is honestly just listening good communication support and being that like source of empowering reassurance. It doesn't always have to be, I have the answers or I know how to fix your milk supply or I know how to fix your breast pain. It doesn't have to be like that. It can mm -hmm. be related to the emotional support, the physical support. And that's something that even though we don't always have training for, it's a little easier to figure that out than to suddenly become a lactation consultant overnight. <laughs> and I appreciate you uh, bringing that up, Kelly, is, you know, being there as an emotional stability because yes. I was, I was probably at my, my most like dysregulated feeling terrible. Like I'm already a terrible mom, you know, and like it was affecting my bonding with her and, and I would take it out on him. And I remember you just being like, totally cool and collected all the whole time of like, that's what I needed. Because I know that if he were to react to my, you know, emotional reaction, it just would have been World War Three, you yeah. know? Yeah, it escalates the, the entire so, feeling of out of control, right? At least when one person has mm -hmm. stability, focus and like, okay, let's take a step back, we can get through this, you know, even if it's just like, Hey, I'm going to Google, who can we call right now to figure this out? But yes, I think the emotional support yeah. really is one of the main keys. And preparing to talk to you guys today, I looked up a little research about how people feel about breastfeeding and how it affects their relationships. And one study I read said that there is a positive correlation between the satisfaction that partners feel, especially the mother, because obviously the maternal aspect is the feeding aspect. If the partners feel solid and connected and supportive of each other, the mom often reports feeling more confident as a breastfeeding mother, as a person who is doing this act of breastfeeding. If she reports that her feeling in her marriage is a little shaky, 
a little less confident um, or even outright negative, she reports feeling mm. lower self-efficacy, lower ability to feel confident in feeding her baby, which is fascinating. Yeah. And it, I mean, it makes it makes sense. You know, you think yeah. about it, having you or having a supportive partner who is there, you know, emotionally or there to meet other needs, you feel taken care of, you feel yes. loved. And well, we had to with our, 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 actually both of our kids, but we didn't know for the first one that the t- tied tongue piece, it was so bad that we had to go to a specialist and they, they lasered part of that off, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. piece. Yeah. And so then baby's healing from this procedure and trying to relearn how to do it properly. And I remember we waited, like you said, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. And another hardship for us is we found, we Googled and found a consultant near us that we could go see a, a private consultant. And we remember it was expensive. And so there was that conversation like, well, is it worth it? Like, is it really, yes. should we really spend the money for this? And it got to that point where like, yeah, absolutely. We need to go see somebody because it's just not sustainable. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and it did. It, it really, it was a turning point, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever work with couples together or is it mostly, you know, the breastfeeding parent? Generally, I only work with people who are doing the breastfeeding, but we talk a lot about partner support and how that actually looks and what people want. And it's interesting. People Mm -hmm. don't report all the time that they need or want the same things. But the key is communicating between the partners and saying, here's what I need to feel supported in this. And most of the time it is, Mm -hmm. as you said earlier, it's emotional support. Sometimes it can be um, helping to pick up these duties that were once maybe my responsibilities, but now I cannot do them all. So if there's a shifting of the duties, some of it is directly related to physical support in the moment. Like, could you please bring me a sandwich? I really am starving. Or... I need help. Mm -hmm. I can't make the dinner tonight. There's zero chance I'm going to be available. This baby is not feeling well today. The baby is needy. I need to do this. There Mm -hmm. is this adjustment. And we kind of alluded to this at the beginning. Often people don't discuss before actual childbirth that we may need to rearrange our previously agreed patterns that we fell into that we didn't even know we agreed to, but we've been using these patterns all these years or however long. And then suddenly things kind of can go awry and many people feel at a loss to, to know how can I get all this done? Or the partner may not assume that there is a need for them to jump in. And sometimes people are afraid to ask, like, you don't want to seem like the taskmaster, you know, like, okay, now you need to do this and this and this. But I think people who have a healthier time moving through these challenges, because look, any way you feed your baby, this is a challenge, right? It's not specific always to breastfeeding. For couples who approach this in a healthy way, I think it's more like, okay, let's reevaluate kind of together. How are we going to accomplish just the day-to-day? You know, how, do, how are we going to get through all the things that we do? Meal making, you know, house cleaning, taking out the trash. Who's in charge of, if you have older kids, like um, getting this one off to school or, you know, managing household duties. Or for instance, uh, this was a big one for us, dog walking. <laughs> that became a totally oh, different yeah. task, you know? And we had to mm-hmm. temporarily mm-hmm. kind of rearrange until 
my daughter was born in October. We were living in Indiana at the time. I mean, it was snowy. I wasn't always ready to go. Even if I could just put her in a, a, a carrier, I wasn't ready to take her out in a snowstorm or something, but the dog her. still has to go out, yeah. right? Yeah. A lot of adjustment around yeah. the, the duties. Ask for what you need because it's so much easier to yes. hear what you need rather than what you don't want from your partner. Absolutely. Yeah, if you're having feeding challenges, not only are you probably losing sleep, but your baby's probably not sleeping yeah. well, your partner's probably not either. And so like, what's the priority in the household? As we talked about earlier, it comes up with a lot of resentment instead of just a cool conversation like you and I are having right now. It can be people are crying, yeah. people are upset, you're maybe um, using a tone of voice that's not your normal way. And it can feel very... Um, just upsetting. And, and there is some resentment that comes along with that. And it's very difficult to always remember and keep your cool in the moment when you're asking for help. You know, sometimes it feels like, why do I need to ask when you should already recognize that I need this thing? Well, the truth is we can't always read each other's minds, right? And without good right. guidance and some clear, like, Hey, I really need this, or it would be nice if you could help me with this. The other thing is, and I, I always counsel people to try this, it doesn't have to be the partner all the time. You know, you could ask others. There are other people in our lives that we can and do rely on for things. And in the moment, the first, you know, six to 10 weeks after a baby is born, and for people who have special needs infants, it can be a lot longer. Like the whole first year can be needy. It's yeah. multiples. You know, if you have twins or triplets, the, the need for support goes on and on. And it, it really helps for parents to understand and ask right away, dial into your support team, ask your family members, ask your extended group of friends, you know, you don't have to constantly rely on the partner because the partner may also be tapped out as well. You've already transferred some responsibilities or shifted the way that your dynamic works in your house so that suddenly you, you need to reach into the extended network. Mm -hmm. Jeez, yeah. you brought up twins and multiple babies. That just, it just blew my mind. Like, they, Aaron just got some cold. <laughs> if you're having twins or multiple babies, like, I would, they need to make it a requirement to go see someone like you, right? Like, that's got to be such a challenge. It has to be. I've met several people who are mothers of twins, and I, I literally, because of the way that my first experience was so out of the blue frustrating, like more frustrating and more um, challenging than I had ever expected, I thought to myself one day, like six or eight months into it, like, what if I had two of these infants? Can you right. imagine? Like, I, I, hats off to anyone who has had multiples, because that it's the amount of work that you do is probably more than double. <laughs> it's got to be. It goes on to every facet of life. I'm curious if you could speak on intimacy after having a baby, sense of being overtouched. And I know like with breastfeeding that that can happen. So a lot of people find that after the all day holding, the feeding, and you know, breastfeeding is really like a contact sport, right? It, it, the baby is on you. And to be frank, and this again goes with any method of feeding, whether you're um, pumping your milk and feeding it in a bottle or you're using formula, most people are finding that the, for newborns, they're holding them all the time anyway, right? So we are 
touching our babies. And just to be fair to the infant, infant touch is absolutely necessary for survival. But at the end of the day, it can be on the parent. You feel overwhelmed. You can feel like, oh gosh, I'm at my limit. I literally need Calgon to take me away. I want to be in solitary place where I can just veg out for a while. And I don't want anyone coming at me. So yeah, the whole notion of like, at the end of the day, the baby goes to bed and then suddenly there's this intimate time for partners. That can be a really, really big stumbling block for people. And I have to tell you that it doesn't, I haven't encountered it so much in conversations with people that I talk to. I don't know if if parents are more reserved about suggesting that the lactation and the physicalness of feeding is interfering with connecting intimately with their partner. I don't, I'm not really sure, but a lot of times people don't bring it up. I know that Mm -hmm. this does exist. This is a dynamic that is written about. People talk about it in other places, um, in books online, but I don't see it or hear it a lot from people that I encounter, but that doesn't mean that they're not experiencing Mm -hmm. it. They may just feel in a way, a little bit guilty about thinking I'm all touched out. Yeah. Because of the baby, I don't want to blame the baby, you know, that sort of a thing. Right. But I, yeah. I also know that in the yeah. first couple of weeks postpartum, no matter how you feed your infant, thinking about the reviving the whole sexual relationship with your partner can be overwhelming and it can feel a yeah. little bit scary for people. There's another aspect of the whole fact that your body has changed to an infant feeding mechanism and it's you you may not feel sexy anymore you may not feel like feel confident enough to connect in that way so there there is a whole curve in the the months after birth not just because of the feeding but because of the way our bodies change during the two years around the beginning of pregnancy to the you know the time the baby is like a year and a half old or a year and three months most of us don't feel physically the same way that we did going into pregnancy, you know, and that can be, to be honest, I think it's a mental hurdle, you know, where you're, you're feeling the lack of confidence in terms of your own sexuality sometimes. So, but I I do Mm -hmm. believe that people often feel the struggle because breastfeeding is so, is such a takeover of especially the breasts, but in fact, the whole body, like you mentioned, just feeling like I can't touch anybody at this moment. Mm-hmm. The takeover of the mm-hmm. breast yeah. from what might have been part of your intimacy to suddenly it's a feeding mechanism. And mentally, I know yeah. that many people make the leap where sort of the door feels closed on that for connecting with partners because mm-hmm. for some people, and I know this may seem if you've not had an infant or haven't done a lot of breastfeeding before, it may seem a little weird, but you can leak milk, especially you know, during a period of intimacy. And if your breasts are leaking, you might feel like, oh my gosh, this is really irritating or what is happening. And people do feel like Mm -hmm. a little self-conscious about it. Whereas before, maybe there was zero self-consciousness in that regard, you know? So it it can introduce a completely new dynamic to intimacy. Or an exciting new dynamic. Yeah. This is true. Nobody talks about it, right? Like nobody, nobody says, hey, by the way, this could happen even, you know, during intimate times or showering or whatever it is, yeah. Yeah. you know? Yeah. And it is, you know, I, I'm glad that you touched on that too, of like this mind trip of my breasts were 
mine and they were like used in intimacy and now it's a feeding tool and now it's back to this and it's confusing and I don't know how to think of it. And you get so wrapped up in your head around intimacy after becoming a mom, at least, you know, speaking for myself of like, everything feels different. I don't look the same. And what if, what if you don't find me attractive and the what ifs and all the spiraling just kind of takes over. It absolutely does. And you know, this is maybe a larger cultural point, but here in this country, we feel the pressure to be, to be performing at our peak or our best or whatever all the time. And there has been this sort of bounce back thought process. Like, oh, we just, we go right back into our lives. We go back into our work. We go back into our households and we just, we are the way we were, except now we have a few more people in the house. But the truth is the entire thing is a mental leap. It's not just like, oh, I'm using my body in a different way, or I'm physical in a different way with my partner. It's a complete readjustment of our lives. And this is something that just isn't discussed about enough. And I'm so glad you guys have this podcast. You're here together. You're doing it as a team, which is really, Mm. you know, a lot of times we put this on the maternal load, right? This is like, oh, well, you're doing the pregnancy and the feeding. So, you know, it's, I don't need to worry about it so much, but the truth is it's, it's Mm -hmm. a partnership, right? Adjusting Mm -hmm. to your new body, the way that you feel about it. The fact that, you know, I don't know that we celebrate it enough. Are we not celebrating the fact right. that I made milk for six years? That's incredible, right? Right. right. And I gave birth. <laughs> yeah. Like I did that. And of course, people have been doing it since the dawn of time. But when it is your turn, it can feel so overwhelming. But truthfully, I do believe we are not celebrating it enough. And I feel like, what if between the partners, we could just agree that this is the most amazing thing we've ever done? Your book, Protecting the, Your Potential for Breastfeeding, I'm curious to hear more about the topics of institutional, racial, and social barriers to breastfeeding. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, well, this, in fact, when I was writing the book, I came up with so many obstacles and barriers to breastfeeding that at first I thought I would use this information in teaching lactation classes and just connecting with clients and and saying, you know, like, oh, you better watch out. Here are a few things that interfere with breastfeeding. My list became so long that I thought there's no way I could tell people about this in a one-on-one client session. So I realized it had to be something that was not a session where I'm just going to teach someone about this. And that's how it became this book. It's actually part two in the book. Part one is how do I do it? How, how does one accomplish successful breastfeeding? And the, mm-hmm. the barriers and the, the things that I like to call lactation interference broke down for me on my list into things that were um, like factors that exist in society, things that we are all exposed to almost all the time, not in the same degree. So it depends, you know, we all have different experiences. And as you mentioned, some of this is racial, some of it is cultural. In different parts of the country, you might experience, or someone, not you, but anyone might experience a higher degree of lactation interference in a societal or cultural way. So some of it, it it comes through as like taboos, like people don't want to see others breastfeeding in public. 
And a lot of people are mm. receive like the nasty look or a bad comment, like, you know, you're not supposed to do that here. That sort of a thing. I profiled at least mm. a half a dozen instances of this in the book. And man, it's fascinating that these things still go on. But the things that I uncovered while I was doing the research on this book was stuff that affects people that we don't even realize. So from the time that we were all small, we see infant feeding in commercials, on TV, in ads, in movies, and usually it's an infant with a bottle. And during the 1970s, that was the way most infants were fed from day one. Day one, 75% of wow, babies wow. in 1970 were bottle fed and only 24.7 were put to the breast. Incredible. It became right. such yeah. a fabric of our society that we were exposed to it as infants, toddlers, as children, as teens, that we digested it without even realizing that that, the marketing of infant formula, is interfering with our future breastfeeding mm. potential. And so those are the things wow. that are the, the kind of the institutional biases. Now, there are mm -hmm. different racial and ethnic groups across the United States and probably all over the world, but certainly here, and I was writing this with the U.S. in mind, experience lactation interference in cultural ways on a different scale. What I learned by doing research for this is that when parents are in the hospital right after the birth and things aren't going well, a lot of times, the not a lot of times, but sometimes, the hospital, the staff, the nurses, somebody might say, you know, if it isn't going all that well, you can try formula. And so it's offered. It's just a thing, right? We are all used to it. But for Black parents in the United States, they are offered formula at nine times the rate of other groups. And we know that wow. formula at, on day one or day two, or even in the first few weeks of life, interferes with your ability to continue making milk. Because when you are not putting the baby right. to the breast, the breast isn't getting the information it needs to increase output. So the fact is right. that there is bias at the institutional level. And this is, it's mm -hmm. ongoing. I mean, we all think like, oh, it's 2023, you know, we're all enlightened. Well, the truth is these biases exist in institutional ways. And a lot of that is what struck me as fascinating and also like it's about time that we need to uncover expose teach people that there is a better way you know the lactation interference that i discuss in the book also goes into things like um how birth interventions that you might encounter during your births for instance epidural iv fluids medication forceps delivery of course cesarean delivery all of these things have downstream consequences for lactation in the first few weeks. And no one is telling you when you walk into the hospital to have your baby, you know, if you engage with these certain birth interventions, it may cause downstream negative consequences for lactation. Nobody says that to you. We all right. go into this yeah. with an element of not knowing what we don't know. Does that make sense? It's, a, it's kind of a hidden mm -hmm. barrier because mm -hmm. we don't realize that it is one. So there's that. And then there's all kinds yeah. of other things that crop up along the way, like bad advice. People don't often know this, but pediatricians are not trained in lactation. So they may have a little bit of a couple of hours of training during medical school of human milk feeding, but they do not have a lactation background. They are not, they have no degree, they have no certificate, no training at all. So a lot of times, unless your pediatrician mm -hmm. has 
purposefully endeavored to get trained, they don't really know. And a lot of times they're relying on personal experience or things that are just kind of common knowledge about breastfeeding, but a lot of that does shift from time to time. These barriers come up for everybody. There's probably no one who has a obstacle-free journey through breastfeeding. And it helps to know what you're up against or, hey, here's how to deal with this particular factor. If, if you are finding that it's a big challenge, obviously you and I both had tongue tie and that is a significant challenge for infants who are breastfeeding. The list goes on and on. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so interesting about the, the downstream effects. You bring up such a good point. And even the little things like during our birth process for both of our kids, like how much doctors and hospitals try to put on the mom that isn't necessary, but people yeah. just take it because they, they, they haven't done the research or they haven't been told they, they have them. a choice yeah. or they trust them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People don't know they have a choice. Mm-hmm. I wanted to touch on one more thing. I noticed that you were saying that breastfeeding can be a very effective form of birth control for, you know, up to six months. And I, I think when I read that, I had a reaction to it because I was like, <gasps> I don't, I don't know. I don't know about that because I got my period for the first time was four months after the second child was five months postpartum. So it came very fast and I was actively breastfeeding. So I thought like, oh gosh, like I could have very well, you know, gotten pregnant then. So I think I just want to know a little bit more about it. I'm so glad you asked about the idea that birth control can be used as effective breastfeeding. And in fact, This is true. Some people are surprised by this, but it's true. However, in order for breastfeeding to function as effective birth control, three conditions have to be in place. Number one, the baby is younger than six months old. So this only works for the first six months postpartum. Number two, the baby is fully breastfed. And this means that the infant receives no other food, no other drink, except for human milk. And that can be milk at the breast by direct breastfeeding, or it can be human milk in a bottle. And number three, there has been no return of menstrual bleeding since the postpartum bleeding has stopped. And that means that you've seen, not seen your period, you have no signs of fertility. So if these three criteria are in place, this can be as effective as the birth control pill. It's 98% or more And once these conditions are no longer in place, it's really, really important that you use backup birth control, especially if you're seeing um, some signs of fertility, uh, and that includes menstrual bleeding. So that's obviously takes out one of these rules. Now, I will say that this does not work for every single person, and it really requires the intensity of breastfeeding that is defined as exclusive breastfeeding. And some people find that when their baby sleeps a lot more at night or starts sleeping for longer stretches, this can um, not be quite as effective. So it really depends on the intensity. But as long as these three criteria are in place, it should be very effective birth control for most individuals. 
That's so, so interesting. interesting. It is. Yeah. Well, this has been amazing. I'm so glad that you were able to give us some of your time and I learned so much as well. And this is going to be so helpful for so many of our listeners. Thank you so very much for having me on your show today. I really enjoyed this. And that brings us to the end of today's podcast episode. We hope you enjoyed it. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Before we go, we want to take a minute to express our deep gratitude to all our incredible guests and listeners. Thank you for being a part of our podcast family and sharing your stories with us. You are truly the heartbeat of Love After Lullabies. If you found value in today's episode, please consider supporting us by subscribing to the podcast so you never miss a new episode. And if you're loving what you're hearing, please leave us a review. Your reviews are like love notes to our podcasting hearts. All of our guests are here voluntarily and not current or former clients of mine. If you'd like to be a guest, we'd love to have you. Reach out via email at loveafterlullabies at gmail.com or DM us on Instagram, handle loveafterlullabies. While you're there, go ahead and click that follow button so you can get all the latest updates and behind the scenes content. See you next time. Oh, there's so many ears. <laughs>